good to, you came back, a lot of you. That, that's great, it's great to see, always great to see. Um, it's good to see you, good to see half your faces. Um, I'm, happy, I'm happy to spend this time with you, the Lord has, has more. Um, before, in the beginning of the session, I wanna open it up to questions. I like to open with questions instead of end, so you, we can end on a note of wonder, um, rather than get lost in the weeds. Um, but that's what I would um, invite you to ponder right now of like what what questions might you have from last time if, if you were here last time if you um, if you weren't you're, you're welcome to ask a question too but before Brett, just a second we're gonna, I'm going to show like a little video first and then and then I'll happily take your question um, we are if you like this stuff um, guess what we are hosting a theology of the body retreat in the spring. So um, I want to show you the, um, the kind of promo video for that. It's my, my office and the Archdiocese and the young adult office are kind of teaming up to, to put this together. Um, so this is, this is a retreat called Echo, and it's uh, the first time it's being done in Atlanta ever. Um, normally it's, it's for kind of like uh, young adults first that put on a retreat for high school students, but this, this retreat will just be um, just be young adults. So here we go. Can you see it? Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like with any retreat, but especially with something like Echo, you come with maybe your own expectations about what you know God's going to do in you or what He wants to maybe talk to you about. I saw that reading that everybody else had, and I wanted it. It's changed my life. I hate it a lot. People who just met are now best friends like within the next two days and that, I don't know of any other retreat that allows that. I mean, it's the truth. And so when we live in the truth, when we know the truth about who we are, there's just this grace that's like within us and we just carry ourselves in a like more dignified way. I always thought the task was just difficult. It was this thing that I struggled with, but just coming into this retreat and knowing that it's not normal, that it should be a triumph. Striving for that vocation to look has just been insane and along the way i've just discovered myself so much because of that this is is different than intellectual knowledge this is the whole knowledge this is the truth that penetrates the mind and touches the heart and transforms the life when you get told that truth and it sinks in and you start to understand like why i'm here and like i feel like i for the first time know i i exist in a sense Oh, cool. 
Sure, I could probably do that. Anybody have a question while, while I'm doing that? You don't have, we don't have to have it. This is just in case you wanted it, especially if we have a smaller crowd, it's more conducive to that. And, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the person that asked. Um, Here, here's the, uh, for, for Joaquin. Mm -hmm. Who is the perfect target audience for that retreat? And what I mean is, obviously, I'm sure the answer is all welcome, but I mean, are these, is it best for people who are practicing Catholic? Is it best for people who never heard of theology of the body? Yeah, like you said, everyone's welcome. I mean, 18 through 35 is the kind of age say um, I would say yes yeah, someone who who is maybe um, has has some faith um, maybe has some, some pretty serious questions you know as I shared last time in my own life um, that's like that's like the ideal so and of course you know someone who's, who's more faithful but echo echo does not force you to be there so so someone needs to be completely free in attending and, and kind of seeking um, and with and a willingness to to seek honestly, uh, but it's not required that they have this great, you know, relationship with the Lord. This is that's what that's helping to foster and helping to, um, you know, create an encounter with the Lord through this teaching, through the beauty of it. So, yeah. Other questions? Thoughts? We'll do that next week too with questions in case you think of stuff. And always you can come to me afterward. Um, we can talk about things, but um, cool. Well, um, let's dive into today then. In the magician's nephew, in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the first book, it tells how the world Narnia was made, and it it um, there's this incredible scene where Aslan, who is kind of like the the God figure, the Jesus figure, um, he's like creating Narnia for the first time and like how he's creating it, um, he starts to sing. Isn't that beautiful? Like Aslan, this, this like incredibly like strong um, lion is, is just like singing into creation and like singing creation into existence. That there's this song like woven into um, all the created things. Right now, like um, how mysterious it is that like through through like our, our bodies, like there's uh, there's like radio waves, right? Invisible waves, uh, like all all the songs on the radio, and mo most of these are, are love songs, right? Um, there's a song written into creation, and there's a song that is being sung in heaven. It is a, it is a love song um, that you came out of. You existed. You came from love, right? And um, and we're all destined to go back to love. We talked last week, just recapping a couple couple things we talked about. Of um, you know, we, we we talked about Rapunzel and and um, you know being in her tower and this desire for um, this desire she has to see see the the, the lanterns, and then she's told you know her, her desires are bad, but she has this desire. And she doesn't really know what this is. 
But underneath this desire, like, it's actually the father calling to her. I heard him. It's amazing. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. This desire for, for these lanterns, like, it's not, it's not just the lanterns. Like, these lanterns actually are the father king sending up lights in the sky, lighting up the whole sky, searching for his daughter, saying, come home. You've forgotten who you are. Let me, let me show you. Let me remind you who you really are. <laughs> what if the lanterns are more than just lanterns? What if the desires you and I feel, the attractions, and sometimes the desires that like conflict even of themselves? Like what if they're more than just that? What if underneath all of them is the Father calling to us, reminding us who we are, that we're made for love, calling us home. We talked about Jesus pointing us um, to the beginning, um, that, that we've, we've now been living in Act 2 for all of our life, our experiences like Act 2 of, of, a, of a large narrative, a large drama, and we really can't understand this, this world, our life, ourselves, our experience, other people. If we're just looking, if we only knew Act 2, that we have to go back to Act 1 to see, see what happened there to make sense of Act 2 and really determine the ultimate, how Act 3 is going to be. And so we were looking at our beginnings. We were looking at our beginnings in the Garden of Eden, where we came from. The, um, the Song of Songs... In, uh, is a is a book in scripture. Um, if you look in your in your in your Bible, it's, it's smack dab in the middle, and it is a uh, boldly erotic love dialogue song between bride and bridegroom. You might like read that, go home another night, look at that in your Bible, and be like, "Wow, I wouldn't expect this to be like allowed to be read at church, right?" Because it's, I mean, the opening lines are like, "Let him kiss me." This is the bridesmaid, like, "Let him kiss me with kisses from my, my mouth," like. And the bridegroom says things like, ah, you are beautiful, my beloved. You are beautiful. You have ravished my heart, right? It's it uses incredibly bodily and erotic imagery. And um, Pope Benedict calls this the essence of biblical faith. Pope, um, Pope Benedict, you remember him, right? Does he look like the kind of guy that like taps into unnecessary sensationalism? Pope Benedict calls the Song of Songs the essence of biblical faith. Why? Because in this relationship, written in this song, in this love duet, in this romance, is, is the best imperfect analogy of the type of relationship God wants to have with us. It's always going to be imperfect, right? We are made in God's image. God is not made in our image. God is not sexual. But of all the, all the ways that analogies fall short, and by definition they always do fall short of, of describing God or describing the relationship that God wants to have with us, the relationship between man and woman is the best. Adam and Eve in the garden is the best. John Paul II says, um, that in the very small words of Adam and Eve in the garden that are captured, where, where Adam says, like, at last, like, 
bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Um, and that's like small dialogue and only a few, few lines that happen in, in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. He says the whole Song of Songs is like, um, is like, a, is like what's really going on in their hearts. It's like if you zoom, if you like zoomed in, it's like that's that's like an expansion upon that. Like it's like fan fiction of, of the Garden of Eden. Like um, that's the interior depth of imagine Adam singing to Eve and that, right? Um, this this song, right? How do we make sense of, of the reality of um, that this this is uncomfortable for us in a churchy setting to like hear this this erotic imagery? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. This woman, um, this woman, is a woman who was so in tune with God's love song, so in tune listening to the song that God has been singing, as evidenced in the creation of the world, evidence in the stars, evidence in the creation of man and woman. That she was so in tune with this what God was saying to her, that she actually conceived divine life in her body. This, this woman can teach us so much. If Jesus can teach us what it means to be human and what it means to be man, through Jesus, by his generosity in giving us this woman, she can tell us a lot about our humanity as well, particularly what it means to be woman. This woman um, allowed the divine energy, that she allowed the divine energy to enter her womb. Whoa, this is heavy stuff. She's so, um, so in tune with the Song of Songs. One of my favorite movies is A Walk to Remember. I think it's an incredible movie, right? And here you have um, Jamie, who is this woman who is in tune with God's love song, right? She, she's in this relationship with the Lord, and it's, it's permeating her whole life, right? And she has, she has challenges and everything, but, um, but she's so wrapped up in this love song um, that this other man, Landon, I think, right? Landon? Um, he's just like watching what is going on with her, like what is going on with this woman, and it makes him like feel this desire to enter into whatever she's singing. Like, watch. I want. I want us to play this video in, um, just in light of what we're talking about, reflecting on on Mary as well. Um, watch his, Watch how. Watch how. Like Landon is being drawn. Um, being drawn by this woman, who is who is captivated, who is aware of this song, living into this song.
So he wasn't supposed to kiss her there in the play, that part. Um, but he does, you know. Um, he's, he's so drawn to this woman, who this woman is so given over to, to the Lord, and, and is, is singing the Lord's side. There's a song that's inside of my soul. It's the one that I try to write over and over again. You ever like recognize a song that you've never heard before? <laughs> you ever like know something like before before it like starts playing? Just like I always love this song. You know, just like the first few chords, just like I just know this is the song. What if there's something to that? What if the lanterns are more than just lanterns? He's so drawn to this woman who's captivated by the song that. His desire, though it needs to be purified a little, as the movie shows, his desire leads him more than just to her. But in, in coming together, it leads him to, to God. Oh, that's it. That's everything. That is it. The relationship, the desire for union that we feel is the Father singing to us. And if we have the courage to tap into these desires, this has the ability, and, and offer them to the Lord, they have the ability to launch us to our destiny, to let us sing and be immersed in the ecstasy of the Song of Songs, the essence of biblical faith. When, um, in Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter, number three, Sir, the, the Wizarding World lives in terror of escaped convict Sirius Black. The media portrays Black as a madman with completely evil intentions. Um, Harry, main character, Harry, <laughs> also fears the, this, this wizard, right? And, and kind of thinks the worst of him as a fear of him. Little spoiler alert. Sorry, little spoiler alert. Um, the truth is Sirius Black is actually a really good guy. A really good guy. And all he's actually wanted is to lavish his love and goodness on his godson, Harry. Right. Um, the media painted a distorted image of who the true character of Sirius Black really was. And, and last week we, we left off on this like great harmony in the garden, like great happiness and, and like ecstasy and this like right relationship between man and woman and them and all of creation and them like in ourselves, this integration in ourselves and of course them and God. It's like what happened? Like what happened to that? And so often growing up, unfortunately, like we never get past the children's Bible edition with a little snake on a tree and that's supposed to explain why, why my grandpa died when I was 12. That's supposed to explain why my aunt has cancer because like there was a little snake on a tree and someone ate some fruit. Like I hope that's not enough for you. I hope like you, you get fed up and seek like what was the violence that ruined this harmony in the garden? It should be the, the most earnest question in our mind. In this garden, in this harmony, a whispering begins. And it's a whispering done by the serpent. Satan, the devil. And he begins to whisper in the ears of Adam and Eve, and he begins to do what the media did for Sirius Black. He begins to paint 
a distorted image of who God is. The serpent tells Adam and Eve, starts to tell Adam and Eve who God really is. And they start to believe it. It's something like, um, you think God loves, I'm just paraphrasing now what the serpent might, might whisper. Like, um, like, you think God loves you? Yeah, that's, that's so nice. Like, um, he actually doesn't. Um, really, it's, I, I hate to tell you this, but like, you've been duped. He's a tyrant. Um, he, he doesn't really care about you. Um, definitely doesn't care about your own interests. So if you, if you, like, if you like want anything for yourself, um, you're going to have to reach out and take it for yourself because he, he, like, he doesn't have your best interests in mind. And they begin to believe it. The Catechism says um, that they, they, they fell for, these, for the serpent's lies, right? And, they, and John Paul II says um, they cast doubt on the goodness of the Father. Have you ever felt in your life, maybe, um, have you ever like been misunderstood by someone? Where someone like kind of frames you um, as a as a as a person that you're actually not. It's the most it's happened to me, even somewhat recently, and um, it's the most painful feeling when someone like actually like thinks the worst of you and it's not true, and you're like, that's, that's not true. That's what that's what Adam and Eve did with the Lord, right? And out of that, um, out of that. Um, thinking God was a different God than he really was, casting doubt on the goodness of the Father, on the character of the Father, they grasped for what they thought they wanted most. When I was a kid, sometimes my, my uh, one, one year at least, my, my grandparents went to Florida for Christmas, and so they dropped off all their presents early, like two weeks early, and my, me and my brother were given strict instructions not to open any of the presents under the tree until Christmas. And so, you know, I was, I was alone in the, in the Christmas tree room with my brother one day, and I, I convinced him that it, would, it really wouldn't be that bad to open, like, if he was to open, you know, one a small present. Um, within minutes, all the presents were open, uh, wrapping paper shredded everywhere, and, um, and it was great, it was great. Until mom and dad came into the room. Uh, punishment was so severe, so severe. Uh, we had, on Christmas Day, we had to wait an extra half hour to open Santa's presents. Just absolute torture for excited little kids. That is the worst, worst thing. Um, the point is like, my parents and my grandparents, they actually wanted me to receive those gifts. Me and my brother to receive the gift. Like, like they want they wanted that. That's why they were there, right? They wanted me to have these those things which I also wanted. But they wanted me to receive it in the best way. In the way in which it could be a gift, communicated as a gift, right? In a way in which it could be received, not taken and snatched for its own. Right? What, what we did was we, we grasped at the gift, doubting the goodness of my grandparents and parents. Um, Philippians 2 says this, Jesus did not deem equality with God 
something to be grasped. So often in our life, the Lord is inviting us, and through really through the whole cross, um, the Lord is wanting to correct our image that we have conceived of God. It's correct that distorted image, like serious Black in the media, um, to believe in the goodness of God enough to wait for Him instead of snatching for um, what we think we want, what we think we need, to trust that the Lord is so good, um, to be able to trust confidently that if it is really good for me, he will provide. Like he will fill me with what I really need. That's, that's what the cross is saying. The cross is saying, like, you think, you think I'm a tyrant? I will allow tyrants to put me to death. You, you think I'm, I'm holding out on you? I, I will allow my wrist to be held to this cross. You think I don't have your, your best interest in mind. I, I, will, I will let you feed off my body and blood and fill you with divine life. Let me show you who God really is. And let me show you who you are in light of that. Right? We talked about um, how the, body, the goodness of the body and how the body reveals the person and all that last week. So as they as they eat the fruit, right, as they sin, I ask you this to ponder. Um, so like, did the, did the body suddenly become bad? Like one minute, the body was good, and now they ate the forbidden fruit, and the body's bad. It says, it says in Genesis that they immediately put masks on, right? They were unmasked, unmasked, without shame, naked, without shame. And then after the fall, they wore masks, right? wore fig leaves, clothed themselves, um, and were filled with shame. So, so what happened? Did the body like all of a sudden become bad? Well, let's explore this with great reverence to Protestant brothers and sisters that are somewhere even in this room. Um, there is, there's one anthropology, one, one kind of understanding of a Christian anthropology of, of our humanity that, that would say that we became utterly depraved after the fall. Humanity, I mean, became utterly depraved after the fall, where there is literally no goodness left in our nature at all. So the body is bad, and anything that flows from our nature is bad, disordered, right? And so when we speak of salvation, when we speak of redemption uh, in, in Christ, in the person of Christ Jesus, um, it is to be understood as anyone who receives the Lord into their life, it's like, um, it's like taking on a, like a white cloak and being covered with Christ. And so, like, who, who I actually am is depraved, uh, but when and then, like, if the Father was to see me, he would just, like, wrath. Just, like, be eager to have, like, wrath. But because I accepted Christ, it's like I'm, I'm blanketed, I'm clothed in Christ, who is, who is spotless, who is sinless. And so, like, when the Father looks at me, he, he only sees Christ. And so, like, I'm, I'm spared. Right? I'm trying to do this the best justice um, and not mis misrepresent this ideology. Luther is famous for using the language of being a, uh, a snow-covered dung heap. 
so dung heap, like depraved, like who we, who we, actually, who we actually are, is utterly depraved, but if we accept Christ, it's like white snow falling upon this dung heap. All right, so it's, you're, you're pristine. The problem with that that I have is that at the end of the day, I'm still a dung heap. There's not necessarily real transformation in me that has happened. I thank God there's, from the element of justice, um, God's wrath is satisfied, but it's kind of like I've tricked God, you know. The Catholic anthropology and Christian anthropology of, of kind of this answering that would be um, certainly to recognize that you, you, can, you, can, you can acknowledge in scriptures like a juridical element in that. Um, but more than thinking that, our, that we're totally depraved after the fall, um, what, if, what if we're really wounded? Like severely wounded. So there is, like, there is some devastating effects from the fall. We'll talk about that. Um, but not everything is completely um, depraved. Uh, there's some inherent goodness of our creation still there. And that in Christ, we actually are transformed from the inside out. That grace actually has the power to change me. And so in this model, it's not a dung heap that's covered in snow. It's more like the fall is like, I'm snow and I got dirtied up and Jesus can make us clean again. A real transformation. This is, um, my own life, for so long, I mean, for so long, I wasn't really interested in following the faith at all, but for so long, I, I had this idea that God was, like, eager um, to send me to hell. I just looked, like, looking for any excuse, like, that God of wrath, right? Um, today, I heard at Mass, like, the, this priest shared the same things, like, uh, I used to think of God as, like, the, the policeman who was, like, hidden away in the bush with the, like, spot on, or, like, ah, gotcha! You're speeding, right? Just like waiting to catch you, waiting for an excuse, and like this image of God with this with this wrath that is unquenchable, that He's just um, He needs His pound of flesh. Um, that was a very heavy burden for me, and maybe for you too. Um, my my goddaughter, when she was born, she had a some problems with her hip, and she. Um, if they didn't catch this, like, thank God, they, they caught this early on when she was, a, a, like, an infant. Um, because if they didn't, she would she would have grown up not being able to walk. Like, wow. But because they caught it so early, she had to wear a brace for the first few months of her life. Um, and the bones when you're an infant are, are so much more malleable at that age. So, so um, she clearly healed now. Praise God. We just got the x-ray last week, actually. Um, but for the first, like when I met her, she was in this. She was in this brace. That's how. That's the first day I met her, and I see her in a crib, and um, I just like I'm stunned because um, she's so beautiful. Like this little girl, like she's so she's so she's so little and tiny and beautiful, um, and I see her in a brace, and, and she's broken. She's like she's, she's little, she's beautiful, and, and she's broken, and. Um, and her, her, her brokenness did not, like, um, disgust me. Like, of course, I wanted her to be healthy, um, but it didn't draw me away from her. It drew me closer to her. It actually made me 
have deeper love for her? What if that's the way the Father looks at um, your deepest sins and struggles? The things that you're most ashamed about, um, that you think God can't love. What if he loves you so deeply that he um, wants to draw you closer to, to those areas that you think he would be most disgusted by? Pretty amazing. In the, we talked about the, um, that we understand that the body reveals the person, that, um, that we're, not just, uh, we're not just like bodies without souls, um, and we're not like souls without bodies, which would be like angels, or, and we're, we're also not like souls that are trapped in a prison of a body. We talked about that. Um, we can, how that practically looks like in, in kind of the world today where you see, you know, a lot of people when they hear like the words like philosophy, they just, the eyes glaze over like, oh, I don't know anything about philosophy, but actually like all of you are philosophers, um, meaning that you have like, and maybe it's something you never like consciously like studied or presented to, but you have like philosophical assumptions about who you are, who, what a human being is, who God is, and those like assumptions, we we can get and be formed by like arts and the media and all, and you know your parents and stuff like that. Um, but you have them, and like depending on like how you view what it means to be human, like it influences like the way you live and view the world. And so, if like for someone who views that like they're just um, they're just a body without a soul, that that, that could tend toward like a hedonism, right? Of just like hey, that's all. This is all there is. You know, live it up. Um, and that can plague us, and maybe has. Um, but like, I mean, for maybe for those who, who kind of view themselves as like, who, who I am is just like, I'm really a spirit trapped in a body. Like the essence of me is just me. Um, but it doesn't, like, body doesn't, doesn't tell me anything about who I am. Um, for me, that, that, that looks like Georgia Tech. <laughs> Seriously. Um, that looks like pragmatism. We're um, kind of a philosophy that has like the consequences of living that out. Uh, it looks like all-nighters. It looks like um, not being like kind to yourself and like um, not really understanding that your humanity is good, right? Of seeing, um, just seeing these things as a burden, right? So I just say that to just give you some practical like examples of like how that like understanding your humanity like if I essentially think my humanity is an obstacle, right, to my to my higher learning or, or whatever, um, I miss the mark. I don't I don't really know who I am. We um, there's a um, so so if a if a if a, a, a young mother is addicted to crack cocaine, just to change gears. Make sure you're um, good, good, you with me. Um, maybe you're wrong. She's addicted to crack, and she's pregnant, and she, um, you know, through her own, through her own decision, she, she became addicted to this, but she has a baby, the baby comes out, and oftentimes the baby is addicted to crack as well, right? That's a real thing. They call them crack babies, right? Um, hey, isn't that interesting? Like, this, this baby, um, didn't choose this, this habit, of addiction and drugs, 
And yet this baby is born with this inclination towards something that is bad for itself. This baby, through, through no decision, no choice of, of this baby's own, um, is born with a natural inclination and natural, right? Um, is born with an inclination, we'll say that, for that which is actually harmful for itself. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Um, it's a great parallel to the teaching that we understand regarding this, this big fancy word that almost no, nobody knows, but, but is like so helpful to understand like who we are and, and, and like how life works for us. It's called concupiscence. So concupiscence is a big fancy way of saying concupiscence is the, the inclination that you and I have towards sin. It's this inclination toward that which is actually not what I really want. That most, most deeply inside, St. Thomas Aquinas says, um, he says, prayer is kind of an unveiling of our will before the Lord. And what he's saying is this, that if you, if you look at all the desires in here, and you go to the first layer, and you're like, I want popcorn. You, you, you move that, and you're like, I want to watch The Office for three hours. You move that, and you're like, I want friends. I haven't like seen friends in forever. You can go deeper. You're like, I want, I want, I want, I want marriage. I want someone who knows me. And you're like, go deeper. You're like, I want God. That, that you go deep enough. You unlayer enough inside the depths of the human heart. Is this desire for God? It's a very positive view he has of the human person. But in this, because of the fall, we inherit this disorder from our first parents towards sin. Now baptism, when, you, when you're baptized, you're cleansed of the effects of original sin. Meaning that you're put back in a state of grace where from the beginning, if without baptism, you're not in, as the church teaches, um, you're born in a state of sin. So, so thank God, praise God for baptism, right? The, the redemption of Christ, like it brings us to that. But even when you're baptized, the effects of original sin still remain for the whole duration of your life in Act 2. That means you will always feel, in some degree, in some degree, not the same amount, but in some degree, the tug of concupiscence, that inclination toward crack, the inclination toward sin. And that was something that you were born with. But it is not natural if you understand the whole story. Act one, there was none of that. Very, very important distinction to make in understanding who we are and assessing things in the world today and how to live in Act two. Um, we'll do this quickly and socially distance wise. I think it's helpful to have like a like a little demonstration. Can I get a volunteer of a guy and a girl really quick to um, do something. I don't want to embarrass you too much. And, and I promise I'll keep the, I think I can keep the social distance. I can totally, I can totally do that. So yeah, any, any, any interest? <laughs> Are you invited? Yeah, please. So yeah, well, you'll go you'll go right there in the center, Molly. Um, 
forward and, and look toward me. Okay, so you're actually going to be God in this. You may have seen this before. They do, they do this from Echo. Uh, I just steal it from there. Um, Eve, of course, um, Adam, but also your narrator. So in, in the beginning, pre-sin, when Adam looked to Eve, and again, we could, we could interchange this. It's the same thing. Which I'm just, it's easier for me to do this narrating-wise, but everything I'm saying about Adam, you could flip around to, to Eve too. Okay. Um, when they see each other, he not only sees Eve for who she is, right? Created for her own sake, not necessary to the man. We talked about that last time. But she sees God. He sees God. <laughs> right? Um, what does it say in the Beatitude? Blessed are the pure of heart. They shall see God. John Paul II says this geek moment. Um, that the man's purity of heart becomes itself a participation of the Father's act of eternally willing Eve from all creation. That's a mic drop. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that in the purity of heart of man, he has the capacity to be an extension of the Father's heart for her, saying, Eve. Eve, Eve, like I will, I will you, like I'm pleased with you, okay? Sin happens, um, before, before this, like, there's, there's, there's vulnerability, there's trust, there's openness, sin happens, and it is as if, um, why don't you go ahead and, like, turn your back? I have to make a distinction, though, because nothing has changed with him. Like, it, it's just complicated with COVID and everything. I don't want to, like, I'll maybe put, like, a drape over him or something. But but we're just doing that for, for the illustration. But nothing has changed with God in this. The change is with us. The change is, so now when I look at Eve, I do not see the Father. It's not as clear. And instead of seeing her as a person to be loved... I make the gross mistake and start seeing her as an object to be used. Okay, go ahead and switch with me just so people can like get the full message, right? Um, where there was where there was trust before, now there's a tendency to con control. Control this this relationship to grasp, right? John Blessing says the the language and the, and the relationship of gift, mutual gift, turns into a relationship of appropriation. How can I give myself turns into what can I take? Love versus use. Okay. Here's, a, here's some exciting things. Um, well, let's just spare a little bit more first before the, before the good news. If, left, let's switch around for a second. So like left to ourselves, um, this is as good as it gets. Like, left to ourselves, relationship between man and woman, um, just, yeah, just just mutual kind of like selfishness. We're just stuck in this. No, no, no going back to what we had before. Right? Um, left to ourselves. That's it. That's it. But in, through Christ, in the redemption that flows from the Christ, from, from the cross, he not only forgives our sins and our mistakes and our failings, right? That, that's such an important part. Mercy, right? But too often we just stop at mercy. 
And I think that's like the best. And when we do that, I get so fired up about this, I do, because when we do that, we empty the cross of its power. We empty the cross. If all, if all Jesus did was just cancel the things, we empty the and we believe that the cross is not effective in your life and in my life. And here's the news, brothers and sisters. The cross is actually effective. It can actually change us to love as we were made to love. I love um, the artist Pink. I, I really do. I, if I can get coffee with any famous person, I would love to. I would love to sit down and talk for a long time with her. There are problems. Yes, there are. <laughs> Christopher, West, Christopher West, my teacher, he calls these these people twisted mystics, right? Why I want to talk to her is because she's someone who is so in tune with our humanity. She's in tune with with kind of these questions that in in so many ways that I'm I'm still learning to be in tune. So it's because she's so in tune with that. Um, like there's she's, she's so close to the right answers of things right and it shows in a lot of her work especially her latest album um, just break this down for a second just give me a reason just a little bit's enough just a second we're not broken just bent and we can learn to love again it's in the stars it's been written in the scars on our hearts that we're not broken, just bent, and we can learn to love again. Okay, break it down for a second. Um, we're not broken, completely, not utterly depraved, or bent, or something. Right? Uh, but it's been written in the stars. It's been written all over creation, this, this love song, right? And we have the scars, we have the scars from Act One, from our beginnings that we're not broken just then, that through the grace of the cross, the power of the cross, Matt, go ahead and turn it again. We can learn to love again. We can learn to love how we're made to love. Give them a round of applause, please. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, any man who looks with a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her in the heart. This commandment, this external act of adultery, Jesus raises the bar. Jesus raises the bar and says that um, if you have even committed adultery in the heart, that's what, that's what counts. What does he mean? Um, I think it's important for us to, to kind of unpack this word lust. This word lust. What does it mean? What does it not mean? Uh, lust does not is not the same thing as desire. And by the way, I should I should have mentioned here, um, like what a great what a great image this is, as, as all these things are coming to mind in ways that we have grasped at counterfeits. Um, Mary Mary bringing uh, Eve to to like to her womb right to to my son Jesus, right? Just reflect on that as we talk about these things. Lust is not the same thing as, as desire. It's not the same thing as erotic love, right? It's often used kind of interchangeably, and that's very confusing. Lust is a perversion of erotic love. Lust is a, is a reduction. It, re, it reduces romantic love and desire to 
a, a pure possessiveness. It's that, yeah, it's that use. It's what can I take? John Paul II says the opposite of love is not hate. It's use. Person, a, a person is a good to which the only proper response is love, not use. Right? And so that's what we mean by lust. That's what we mean by lust. We are not saying um, that eros is the same thing as lust. What, one of the reasons where I, I first began to realize that I had heard these words, theology of the body, but the, the, this was the first day that I actually thought, oh, maybe I don't actually know this thing, which I thought I knew, was when one of my friends, Elizabeth, made a comment that John Paul II said that it's, ne it's not even okay for us to lust for our wives. And I was like, what? Are you, what? That is just, this is just getting out of hand now, right? Isn't this the whole point? You see how broken I was, right, at that time. Thank God for Elizabeth, right? Um, isn't that the whole point? That was my reaction. I was, I was angry that I couldn't lust, wasn't, or wasn't allowed to lust for my wife. And my thought, my thought, my honest thought was, well, like, who, who can you lust for then? Nobody. Nobody. And this is why, this is why abstinence education is one of the most harmful things that we do to our young people and why I never do it. What I mean by that? Of course, I, I do believe in the practice of abstinence until marriage. That's not what I'm saying. I have to clarify that for the kids sometimes. Um, but the mentality that is often presented to our young people, and maybe to you growing up, if you grew up in a Christian circle, was just like, hey, you have all these desires. Um, just like hold your breath for 15 years, um, and, and then one day you'll get married, and then, and then just go to town. And it's going to be great. It's gonna be, you'll be, you're going to be so glad. Um, you are be so glad that you like you stuff that all in, in a chest, uh, and then you just open it, and like all the things that you um, that you desire, like all all, all those desires, um, this person will like fulfill them for you. And we wonder why there is like incredible divorce rates. What this model is telling me is telling me like repress my desires. It's telling me to say no to something. It's not inviting me into anything to say yes to. And it's certainly not forming me into a purity of heart that the Lord wants. This is the ultimate danger. This is the ultimate danger. St. Augustine talks about this man who prided himself for his purity. He lived a life of continence, which what Augustine meant by that was no sexual activity for all his life. And when he was 84 years old, he hired a, a girl prostitute, a little girl prostitute. Right? St. Augustine talks about this and reflects why. Because this man never had the virtue of purity. This, never, this man never um, actually wrestled with his desires and experienced that transformation of the heart that is possible through grace. This man only learned how to stuff them away 
And so it looked exteriorly, it looked a lot like purity, but it was a lie. And the Lord is inviting us not to stub away our desires, right? Um, Elsa is the greatest example of this, um, right? So there's, so there's like um, on one end, like don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. So it's this, it's this like spectrum over here, and then that doesn't work. And then so, so we go over here. We let it go. Let it go. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Complete indulgence of desire. Indulgence of desire, repression of desire. It's this pendulum swing for many of us. Many of us who have been burned by this will go back to this for refuge and listen to sometimes the voices of many within our churches um, who, are, who are very undercatechized and don't know themselves. And this is honestly what they believe purity is. What, what is the answer? What, what are we supposed to make of this? If not indulgence, if not repression, like what is Elsa to do with her power? Expose. To expose our desires before the Lord. That, that's the sweet spot. That's the place of the transformation. My mom, my parents have hired a maid to help clean their house once, once a month. And every, every time, like the day before the maid comes, my mom cleans the whole house. She calls this pre-cleaning, right? It drives me bonkers. Like, you, you, are, you are hiring this person to clean your house. Why, why are you cleaning it? Just, hey, I have to pre-clean. Because um, I, don't, I don't want her to see the full messiness of this place. We laugh, but like many of us, and myself included, uh, often approach the Lord this way. Right? We want to pre-clean before we allow Jesus into our house. Is resonating with anyone? You want, and maybe that has that that level of cleanliness hasn't even arrived arrived yet, and so Jesus is not it's not even invited until you reach that. So you, whatever that standard of cleanliness is, like that, only only then can Jesus come over. And, and even if He does, he, you, the third floor is blocked off. We are not no no guests on the third floor. Certainly not Jesus. We just we just don't even talk. The third floor doesn't even exist when Jesus is around. And Jesus is like Zacchaeus, I'm standing at your house. Jesus will go to your house and be like, Oh, this is nice. I want to see you on the third floor. What's on the third floor? Oh, no, 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 no. And he does it not because he wants to, like, again, like, say, like, I got you to find some stuff. But he wants to love us there. He wants to love us there. First and foremost, he wants to accept us in all the mess that we are. Before trying to change anything. Before needing to fix anything. He wants to receive us in that exactly as we are, without change. All these desires 
that you feel about yourself. All the shame. Shame about your body. Jesus wants to come in and listen and maybe grieve with you. And maybe that act of love itself will be enough to, to purify and elevate our desires that launch us to our destiny. Maybe he wants to teach us in that moment for what we're really what we were looking for. Like that Canaanite woman. To make sense of everything we've done. And so and, and to teach us, you know, this is what you were really looking for. This is what you were made for. My uh, I love the movie Yes Man, because it just it it talks, it's it's Jim Carrey, who's this negative guy, he's saying no to everything, but then he he, he finally like um, has this kind of life-altering philosophy where he's going to start saying yes to things, like everything that comes. Like, you want to you want to go to this conference? Yes. You want to travel? Yes. You want to you want to like um, I'm homeless man. You want to give me all your money? Yes. You want to get into a fight? Yes. Um, so it's wonderful, and it, there's like good things happening, but um, eventually, like, there's this. He it also like leads into this great relationship with this girl he's in love with, um, but then like later in the movie, his ex-wife comes to see him, and she wants to get back together. And he's like, yeah. And suddenly he realizes that sometimes he has to say no. Like in order for the most important yeses to count, they mean, they require, they demand that I say no to other things. When we talk about the virtue of purity and chastity, um, that's what we're talking about. We're saying yes to the real thing. Yes to authentic love. Yes um, to the relationship that God wants to have with us that, that is inviting us into. And it means saying no to so many other things. But it's, but it's all done with this great yes. It's all done with this great yes. Um, I want to end with this clip. Um, I think it, I think it, I think it is resonating with with some people here of um, a woman who is wrestling with the desire to grasp, right? Wrestling with this, particularly in the light of of, um, of relationships. And I just want you to listen to her. And um, she's so cool. Anyway, maybe you've seen this. Um, I'll just let this speak for itself. So it seemed that it was cool for everyone to be in a relationship but me. So I took matters into my own hands and ended up with him. and a thief. So why was I surprised when he broke into my heart? I called 911, but I was cardiac arrested for aiding in the bed because it was me who let him in, claiming we were just friends. It was already decided for me by the first date that even if he wasn't, I was going to make him the one. 
you know, I was tired of being alone and I simply made up in my mind that it was about that time, so I decided to drag him along for the ride because I was always the bridesmaid and never the bride. Uh, virgin in the physical, but mentally just a grown woman on the corner and he was tired of the wait. So I was going to make him the one. He had a form of godliness, but not much. But, but, but hey, hey, I can change him, so I'll take him. I mean, he's close enough. Ready to sell my aorta for a quarter, not knowing the value of its use to me. Arteries so clogged with my will and blocked his will from flowing through me. So I thank Christ that his blood pressure gave this heart an attack that that line my obscure vision put me flat on my back. Through my ignorance, he saw. So through my sternum, he saw it and cracked over my chest to transplant Psalms 5110. A new heart and a for you. See, the bad thing is that I knew he wasn't you from the beginning. Because in the beginning was the word and he didn't even sound or shine like your son. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and all he could whisper was sweet, empty nothings. Which meant nothing. He couldn't even pray what I needed him to. Asking him to fast would be absurd, so forget about being cleansed and washed with water through the word. But I know you, you are already praying for me. Even never having met me, let me assure you, I will wait for you. I will no longer date, socialize, or communicate with carbon copies of you to appease my boredom or to quench my thirsty desire for attention and short lived compliments from sort of kindness. You know he's sort of kinda right, but sort of kinda wrong. His first name Luke, his last name Warm. We even speak the same math. 
full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. You have so you have to admire, I think, this morning.